theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. So good morning, Joy, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Dr. Amy, how are you today? I'm doing well. You know, I always look forward each week to our our recording sessions and our conversations with people in the field, with professionals, with researchers, with authors, teachers, administrators, and I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Shannon Dermer. She is a colleague, a friend, and a wonderful mentor. And she is an expert in the field uh, when it comes to sex therapy and dealing with issues of depression and trauma and relationships. And she is so authentic. I am so looking forward to her. And what's most impressive is her set of encyclopedias, not just one, but two sets. I always thought that this was the work of an organization, but this is the work of a single individual. Dr. Dermer, she, she is awesome. I cannot wait. Dr. Dermer is uh, near and dear to our hearts. We, our colleagues work at Governor State University together. And Dr. Dermer has a doctorate in marriage and family therapy and a bachelor's and master's in psychology. She has been in higher education and a counselor educator for over 20 years. She specializes in working with couples and training clinicians to be comfortable discussing sexual issues with clients. Dr. Dermer has served as a faculty member, program coordinator, chair, and dean. Currently, she is a professor and dean at the College of Education at Governor State University. She stays active in the field as a KCREP site visitor, advising doctoral students, publishing, presenting, creating training videos, writing grants, phenomenal grant writer, always shares the wealth with uh, other colleagues. She has also edited two sets of encyclopedias, one on marital couple family counseling and one on multicultural counseling and social justice and advocacy. So today I'm uh, really interested in hearing uh, Dr. Dermer's thoughts on the family reactions and support during times of chaos and uncertainty, especially with remote learning and these other uh, times of upheaval. So welcome, Dr. Dermer. Thank you, I appreciate uh, being invited. And of course, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, couples, families, uh, and individuals, but uh, my background is always 
been working with couples and families as well as individual work, but I, I really like that systemic perspective. So I'll be happy to talk about how the current situation is affecting the individual and the, and the families, the systemic wide thing we're all going through. Yes, there's so much we wanna to talk to you about. And I hate to disappoint our listeners, we will not be talking about sex today. Okay, so no sex therapy. We're going to stick to the social emotional <laughs> strand today. So I so, can work it in though. I can work it in if you want me to. <laughs> maybe that would help with social emotional, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so so let's let's talk about these times that we're in. And to start off, I want to talk about and just for our listeners, defining some things trauma versus depression versus an upsetting situation. And I'll tell you why this is interesting to me. I was listening to Michelle Obama recently and and she expressed that she was going through depression. And when she said that, you know, I don't take that lightly because I know that we have people that are clinically depressed. And so oftentimes we use that word, we probably overuse it, you know, and what is the difference that you know, it's a gloomy day, it's a pandemic, and I feel sad today, or an event happened versus trauma versus depression. Uh, yes. I mean, we have gotten into this idea of whenever we're feeling down that we call it depressed. But for counselors and therapists, social workers, psychologists, you know, anyone in the medical and mental health uh, fields, or behavioral health fields, there's actually a specific meaning for that. And there's a difference between sadness and feeling down and clinical depression. And um, I mean, both can interrupt your life, but usually feeling down or feeling um, sad is a little bit more temporary, or even if it lasts for a while, you don't have some of the other indicators for full-blown depression. And so I think I think in some ways it normalizes it that people are like, oh, I'm depressed, but also it waters it down because there there really is a difference. And so with depression, we have something called the the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Health Disorders. And uh, in there, there are criteria for diagnosing certain things. And you have there's a long list of criteria for diagnosing depression, but you only have to have a certain number of those criteria. And part of the criteria is feeling down, not yourself. You're not enjoying the things that you usually do, that you feel sad, that, um, you know, that you're having a harder time connecting uh, with people. But there are also additional things like sleep disturbance, uh, gaining weight, losing weight. Uh, There's a lot of other things. And it also has to happen over a certain period of time. And so it has has to reach a, a critical level of really impacting your life your relationships and your ability to do your your work or your daily activities for it to actually be called depression. And so I would rather personally as a professional people say like gosh I feel down or you know I feel sad rather than using depression which has a different meaning for us. Um, does that make sense difference between like sadness and, and depression that it, it it's Yes. There are commonalities, but it's at a different level and for a different length of time. Yes, totally. And uh, what about trauma? Yeah, so it's the same thing with trauma. The actual definition of trauma is a relatively uh, 
general one. It's something that is, uh, it can be a, a specific event that is very upsetting. It can be a series of repetitive events. It can be a chronic condition, like maybe living in poverty and things like that. It's not a specific event, but a, uh, an environment and condition around you that uh, keeps you from accessing uh, different resources, you know, relationships, um, financial resources, uh, physical resources. But the difference, there can be an event that is upsetting that's not necessarily trauma. An event that is upsetting and has long-lasting effects and uh, exceeds your ability to cope with it is what trauma is. And you can have um, a traumatic event or you can have complex trauma. Complex trauma is the type of trauma that is ongoing, harmful, and repetitive. Um, so there, there are different things. It could be one event, like someone shoots you. That's a traumatic event that for some people will exceed their ability to cope with it and have long lasting effects. And by that, I mean more than we would typically see. Cause obviously that would have an effect on anyone but if it was longer or bigger than what we would typically expect to see, then we might call that, um, you know, ongoing trauma. So those things, that's what makes trauma very difficult. And I think sometimes it makes it difficult for people to empathize with because it'll be different for each person. You and I can experience the same event. And for you, it might be upsetting but you are able to cope with it different because you have people who support you. Uh, you have um, lots of different internal and exter external resources to deal with it. The meaning that you put onto that event may be different than someone else where someone else could experience that same event. And it is traumatic for them in that it exceeds their resources to cope with it. And it has longer bigger impact on that person than it does on you. So that's partially what makes it different because it depends on the person experiencing. Right, right. And it may bring back old wounds. Uh, mm -hmm. So my daughter would tease me that I was suffering from PDDS, post-traumatic deer syndrome. You know, last year <laughs> I hit a deer and I felt it was very traumatic in the way that number one, I can't remember seeing the deer I did not see the deer when I hit it. I didn't see the go look for the deer afterwards. So I had the evidence of the deer that I totaled mm -hmm. my car uh, and all the residue from the deer. But I've completely blocked out the fact that there was a deer and I cannot drive near that same area without mm -hmm. reducing my speed to like from 45 to about 15 miles an hour. And I'm just terrified every time I drive near that area. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a good a good kind of simple example uh, in that um, it's not something very complex. It's a specific event that you're doing. And for some people, like if you were a hunter, maybe you'd be like, "Ooh, I'm going to pull over and look for that deer because I didn't mean to hit it. But now that it's been hit, I might as well put it out of its misery and take it home and eat it. Right. But for you and me, we were like, no, and I'm a vegetarian. So uh and I have had that experience where I accidentally hit a deer, don't know where it came from, just all of a sudden was in front of my car and I burst into tears. And I'm not someone who like usually cries in front of other people. I burst into tears. I had, you know, kind of persistent feelings of shame after that. Like, why didn't I, you know, why did, why couldn't I avoid it? I had flashbacks, kind of like it sounds like you did. Oh yeah, so uh, you, you get me. <laughs> yeah, and all of those are kind of trauma symptoms. 
you know, but it is on a lower level in that, although it was traumatic to me and it might not have been to other people and it was traumatic to you, it probably didn't have a, it didn't have a huge effect on my life. So it wasn't this ongoing trauma. And I was able to, after a few months, kind of put it away, but it was traumatic and did have an effect on me, but I didn't, I didn't have panic attacks afterwards where I had to completely avoid, you know, that area, or I didn't have, although I had sadness about it, I didn't have full blown like clinical depression about it where I couldn't function in other ways. But for some people you could, you could see that. And then especially if they already had something in their past that was violent or something like that, that it also connected to those previous incidents and was one more piece of evidence to them that in this world, they're not safe or nobody's safe or, you know, things like that. So that was definitely a a traumatic incident for you and for me that may not have been to others. In fact, after I uh, hit the deer and I called a friend, they're like, and it was the middle of the night and I was crying. The first, my friend on the other line went, that's what you woke me up for? I'm hanging up, call me in the morning. And and that was even more traumatic. (laughs) I needed some support, understanding. Yeah. yeah, And support and understanding. So that's with this pandemic that we're experiencing, I heard it be described. We're not in the same boat. We are in the same storm, but we are all in different boats. And so this pandemic is affecting us all in very different ways. Can you speak a little bit to how trauma is of being identified in different populations, perhaps people who are in different boats? Yeah. So that's a really good point. And from the literature, we know that if a whole large group of people experience a traumatic event at the same time, that actually it it tends to have less impact because you have all these people that are in the same boat who can empathize. And and usually there are resources, you know, available made by the community or the government or a religious organization or whoever, because there's a large number of people who've experienced a similar thing. So in that way, in some ways, this pandemic is quote unquote good because lots of people can um, connect with each other and empathize with each other. But speaking to your point, it's also strange in a way because it is different for different people. And some of that is socioeconomic. Some of that is developmental. Some of that is um, based on people's social supports and also their their vulnerability to what's going to happen to them if they catch, you know, COVID, that there's different impacts on people. Obviously, some people are asymptomatic. Some people end up in the ICU. Some people die. Uh, So, and then some people are, so I'll talk to that, like socioeconomic status, for instance. It's different if you're out of work for a little while because of COVID and you have enough money versus if you don't, because now all of a sudden there's these extra stressors. It's different for parents, uh, because I think a lot of this is really hard on parents. Um, It's different for parents who have children who um, are able to do their schooling and stay at home alone, you know, if their school closed down versus parents who hadn't expected to have to teach their children or find um, care for their children, why they did, why they're either at work or trying to do their work at home. It's different for some of the marginalized groups who, because they don't have as much money 
or because they because they have less access to health care or whatever other reasons that they have a higher death rate in their um, in their uh, groups, you know, their populations, that that's a different experience. Um, so we're all experiencing the pandemic or if you have a loved one who's in the hospital that you can't visit. So we're all experiencing this basic thing of, oh, we're supposed to work from home. We're supposed to wear masks. We're supposed to socially distance. But some of the contextual issues are so different that it means, like you said, the good uh, um, metaphor that you had, that uh, we're all in the same storm, but in different boats. Some of us are in little dinghies. <laughs> some of us are in huge super yachts. Um, some of us are, uh, what was the um, what was the movie that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, the Titanic, some of us are on a little piece of wood, <laughs> you know, holding on in frigid waters. Right. Uh, so. It, it does make a di big difference on what your resources are, what the stresses are, what the demands are on on you, and how you weather this pandemic. Right, I can see that. Uh, you mentioned parents as one example. I want to talk about another group, teachers. Mm -hmm. And we know that teachers are really feeling it now, right along with parents, especially parents that are teachers. My daughter happens to be a third grade teacher. She's teaching from home and she has a five-year-old started kindergarten this year and a nine-year-old and she has a, a, a terrible two who's kind of traumatizing everybody in the house. <laughs> um, but but it's, been, it's been difficult. And um, some of the things that she has experienced has been difficult, especially along the social emotional realm. She's seen students in their homes and she's seen a completely different side of what goes on in their home from um, malestation to verbal abuse to physical abuse. And already it's difficult for her to manage the technology and you know the day-to-day -day rigor of trying to teach her kids online help her children that are in remote school, watch the two-year-old. I mean, it's very challenging. And to then not be able to meet the social emotional needs of her students. And uh, Amy and I, we were just looking at a Padlet discussion and Padlet is this interactive kind of bulletin board, water cooler type of conversations that teachers were having expressing how they're feeling and they're really stressed out and you know we, we kept looking for the silver lining and then maybe one out of every hundred teachers would say something positive and uplifting but for the most part these teachers they express concerns from technology to parents blaming them to not having enough administrative support to feeling inadequate in meeting not only their students' needs, but the needs of their families. And, yeah. you know, I just wonder how, what kind of support do we give teachers? You know, how do they process this? This is a very vulnerable group, I think, right now. It is, it is. Um, I think there's a lot of different things going on. You know, I always, when I train counselors or therapists, I always talk about change, and that change can be good or bad, but it's almost always scary because uh, predictability is how we get through a lot of what we do in life. And whenever you have change or transition, it's new rules, it's new ideas, it's new things to think about. Um, even if it's something that's good, people say like, well, this would be good for my client. Why don't they change? Because change is scary. And sometimes you don't know if change is going to 
turn out to be something good or bad. And there's a fear there. So change is hard anyways, but especially unexpected change, change that comes along with in more areas of your life, which now it does because, you know, some of these teachers, especially if they have their own children or other people in their home, it's that uh, they had to change what they do for school. They had to change what they pay attention to. They had to change the way they interact with their students. But now they also have to balance people being at home, the technology issues, changing their lesson plans, you know, or how they're, you know, presenting things. Like it's just an overwhelming amount of change. And change is already hard, even if it's good change. And for the most part, I think most of us would say, even though we're doing this for good reasons to protect ourselves and protect other people, that it wasn't necessarily something that we, uh, that most of us wanted, you know, this type of change. So even though there's good things that can come out of it, overall, I think most people see it as a, a negative thing that we had to change to something that we didn't choose. It chose us. So um, I think that's really hard. And then that is heightened by the fact that most of us, not all of us, but most of us are social creatures and there's missing things. Uh, like we're, we're on, actually, even though the audience can only hear us right now, we're actually on a, on a Zoom type meeting right now where we can see each other. And that's nice that we can see each other, it adds a layer besides just hearing uh, one another. But there's other things that you don't get from being on Zoom, that there is a difference between being in the room with someone, being able to feel their energy or even things that we may not be consciously aware of. You know, we talk about pheromones and different things that on an um, unconscious level give us information about people. And all of that is cut off when you're not in the same room with somebody. And especially for children, if you think about attachment theory, where they learn not just information from their teacher or from their um, classmates, they also, we talk about co-regulation of emotions. They learn things from being connected to other people about their environment, about content like the teachers are teaching, but also about socio-emotional type things from observing other people and interacting with other people, which you know gets reduced a lot. Uh, and then you also have what you talked about, which is um, for the teachers having to learn new technology, having to see things that they don't usually see or to, you know, you talk about classroom management strategies. Now it's world management strategies because they're seeing the whole world of their students. And that's overwhelming. The brain can only take in so much information. Uh, even just sitting here, there's millions of bits of information coming at us. But depending on our worldview, our theories, what's emotionally important to us, our brain attends to only a small amount of that. Well, teachers have been trained on what to attend to in the classroom. And now all of a sudden, there's all this extra information coming at them that they haven't been, they haven't trained their brain how to pay attention to some things and how not to pay attention to other things. And so it feels very overwhelming, cognitively, emotionally, professionally, all of those things. So I really do feel for the teachers. Uh, no, I think that's really fascinating that we need to be in tune to how we were trained and that it's okay right now to feel overwhelmed because our training did not prepare us 
for this world of information that we're seeing when we are on Zoom and we uh, are seeing our our students' homes or in in my case, teaching a college class, maybe their cars or their workplace. And mm-hmm. so there's this extra information that we are con- have become consumed with and we don't know how to address those needs if we see them. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about change, I think too about how do how did we have to change? Not only did our environment change and force us to face new challenges, I'm thinking individually, how have the projects that you are currently involved in, how did they change because of the pandemic? Well, you know, I think that there was a lot of change that happened during this time and it heightened some things like racial disparities, you know, uh, healthcare disparities, all of those things. So in, in my field, there's been more attention to some of the like structural racism, systemic oppression. I mean, we're always paying attention to it, but this has kind of brought it to a head that during a crisis, it really highlights the disparities. Like I talked about in different kinds of resources and how in, for some people, COVID is affecting everyone, but for some people, it has a much, much bigger impact. The fewer resources they have, the bigger their impact there is in a disproportionate way. And so in my field, you know, a lot of people, or even on my own projects, like for the, uh, I'm, I'm still working on the diversity, the multicultural social justice and advocacy one. So we've had to add some new information to the encyclopedia, add some entries, you know, to deal with this current situation, because it's one that um, I really haven't seen in my lifetime. I know that other people have lived through different flu pandemics. Of course, we had like the bird flu, but that didn't really affect the United States the way, you know, COVID is. And so it's changed some of my projects to focus a little bit even more on structural disparities and um, advocating for certain groups and paying attention to how a a group trauma like this differentially affects different people. And so many of our journals have called out for, you know, special issues and, and things like that to talk about how to help people to cope and especially marginalized groups, how to help them to cope with what's going on. So what are some of the findings that you've learned about some of your recent work during this time? You know, I haven't done, I have not done like a research project per se, but some of the things that I've, I've noticed, it is interesting because it does, it does interact with personality style a little bit in that I have seen some people who say, oh, this is a bit of relief to be able to work from home because they do have a good support system at home. And they say, well, I'm an introvert, so I don't really like having all of those um, external interactions anyway. So actually, this fits my style. I never thought I'd be able to work from home, but now I'm, I'm forced to. So I've seen some people who actually uh, benefit from it and they enjoy it. But again, it's partially because it fits their style and their resources that they already you know, have. So I've seen some people say that. I imagined for school age children for a lot of them this is extremely difficult but you can imagine for some kids who don't like going to school because of the social aspect not because of the learning aspect because that would be even harder in some ways now but because of the social aspect kids that are who are bullied 
or part of vulnerable groups because of their sexual orientation or their gender gender orientation or because people don't like how they look or they you know they dress or whatever it is that makes them more vulnerable some of them probably feel more safe learning from home right uh, i teach i'm teaching freshmen this semester and two of my students have indicated that this works well for them one is an introvert doesn't like talking and she likes doing one-on-one. -on -one. So I've had several one-on-one -on -one conversations with her, but she's experienced bullying in the past. So this works for her. And another young man, you know, he hasn't really decided if he wants to go to college. His parents want him to go to college and he's already at 18 years old, a day trader. And uh, so he feels like he's making as much money as his parents are now and college is pretty useless. But this was a, you know, he said this was a good transition for him to give him a little taste of college without jumping in because he wanted to avoid the whole social aspect of being in college. But uh, I imagine for students and I know even for employees going back to school, there's going to be some anxiety you know, I already feel, you know, I was explaining to Amy, when I'm watching television, I get nervous and I say, oh, they're not wearing a mask. And my husband mm -hmm. had to remind me, oh, this is TV. And <laughs> <laughs> because I expect everyone to be on guard and being safe. So, you know, I think I have some reservations of going back, number one, safety, and number two, how do I regiment myself every day? Because right now I have no interruptions. You know, mm -hmm. I have very poor work-life balance, you know, because you kind of ignore the fact that you now have this personal life and your work becomes everything. But I think that there will be quite a transition to going back to the office, you know, with work-life balance and interruptions. You know, we might have some challenge that, uh, watering hole may be pretty full. People are just there chatting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I do actually want it because, you know, a lot of times when we talk about school and kids, we're talking about the younger kids because they can't do things on their own. So it's more of a challenge for them and their their parents. Um, but, uh, but with college, it's also interesting because one, I'm a big believer that if you're getting the full college experience, that it's not just about content classes. It's you're learning about lots of different things, how to interact with new people. If you live on campus, it's how to have a roommate, make that transition of for many people, not all, but living in your parents' house to, you know, um, living with, with other people and strangers and how to manage that and boundaries and a school life balance and how to, you know, you don't have a caretaker there saying, get out of bed, you're late for school. You have to do all of that, you know, for your, for yourself. And, um, but still in a, in a more supported environment that if you were completely in your own like apartment or things like that. So I think that a lot of people with the remote learning, while they are still getting the content of what they're supposed to get, they're not getting that full college experience. And if you're at a community college, you still have aspects to that. If you live on campus, you have more aspects for that. If you have less life experience, then that has a bigger impact on you, the college, the full college experience. And so I feel bad for people who are missing out on that, as well as the friendships that are easier to form when you're on campus together versus online. Uh, so while it's nice for your student to, you know, be able to learn about somewhat about the content, 
I don't think going to college is just about earning money. It's nice that you tend to earn more money if you have a college degree. But to me, it's a whole transitional time in people's lives, especially if you're doing it after high school. But even people who come back later in life, that that full college experience has less of an impact on them. But there's still an impact of learning where you're constantly around like a library and faculty and other you know resources, your, your classmates, that some of that is cut off. Uh, or you'd have to make a really big effort to do that when we're remote. Um, but the other thing that you you talked about is that transition, the transition to remote learning um, or remote working or whatever that a lot of people are doing and the transition back to a more typical time or normal time. Um, it is probably going to be anxiety producing for some people, especially if there was a transition that happened during that. So, for example, if someone was going from junior high school, you know, eighth grade to um, freshman year in high school, well, they never got to make that full transition of what what that's like if they're doing remote learning to be in a school with all of these strangers that they never knew before and navigating the larger school for high school and all that. So that has been prolonged. They're doing the classes and they know some of their classmates and their teachers, but they didn't get that whole transition experience so maybe in their sophomore year, we're going to be seeing them go through some things that we would have expected them to do in their first year, you know. So there's kind of some delayed anxiety and transitions for people. But the biggest part, I think, for adults, but especially kids, is going to be going back to a more structured environment, which is is good for them, I think. But yeah, where they're not hard. falling asleep, where they're not falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, because right now it's a lot more loose. They can be wearing whatever they want. They can do it. In fact, that's one of the things if you see some of the news things where like someone was eating on a Zoom call and uh, the teacher's like, you're not allowed to eat during class. And like, I'm in my own house. What are you talking about? You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I know one of the things that my daughter did for my uh, granddaughter, the five-year-old, because I asked her about her new school and she said, I don't have a school. And so my daughter started taking her on walks to see the Mm -hmm. school so she can identify with the school because she didn't know the name of her school. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she didn't really understand what kindergarten was all about. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. No, you, you make a really good point about this transition piece and what we need to look for a year from now. If there's a structure in place what kinds of behaviors might we see or what kind of transition do we need to prepare for as, as adults or as children? And what are some of the behaviors that we might see with a delayed transition? Yes, I definitely think you're going to see some anxiety. I think that you're going to see some maybe oppositional type behaviors so, and you tend to see this, but it was a shorter amount of time when people, tr- when um, kids transition from summertime to going back to school, where, you know, they've been staying up till midnight and then getting up at, you know, uh, 10 in the morning instead of like, you know, on their school schedule. And, and you'll see some crabbiness and, um, you know, maybe some, I don't want to go to school and things like that. But now, instead of talking about, you know, maybe 12 weeks over the summer or whatever, you know, eight to 12 weeks, whatever it usually is, depending on the school you're at. Now you're talking about a year 
or over a year that they've had this. And I, I do think it is good in some ways that many of the remote teaching has now moved to a more structured type environment. That'll make the transition less hard to go back. Now kids do have to be online in their class at 8.30 a.m., where when the pandemic first happened, it was more just uh, for some schools, like online teaching where you could access it at your own time. So you could sleep till 12 and then still do your classwork. Now, a lot of the schools have set up a little bit more structure, which is good for the transition back. It's harder, though, I think, for parents or caretakers who may be having to work from home also and they have limited devices, you know, if, if you don't have as much money or you're not privileged in that way or where you have limited bandwidth at home for you and your kid or kids to have to be working online at the same time with that more structured um, uh, stuff for school can be really difficult for some of the adults in the home. And also, uh, how do you keep an eye on your kindergartner who's supposed to be attending school while you're also, like in Joy's case with her daughter, supposed to be teaching her own classes? So there's both good and bad to that. But the more structure you can give them, probably that transition back will be easier. Maintaining rituals also. So for instance, before the pandemic, some, uh, not all, but some families would be like, okay, when you get home from school, you do this. Or when, when your parent or your caretaker comes home from work, we all do this. Or we all have dinner together at least a couple times a week, where I think some people have created new rituals, like going on the walks or um, having lunch together because they weren't able to do that before because you know parents or caretakers were at work and kids were at school. But some families have kind of lost some of the rituals that they had. So putting back in some structure, if it's not there, putting back in some rituals, I think would definitely help uh, with that transition. Making kids dress for school, not attend school in their pajamas or whatever, like having it be as typical as possible um, would be better. And again, this is part of privilege also. Like if you have a separate room that can be an office or the learning room, then great, but not everybody has that. So you can make, like Joy was talking about, that transition from here's work time or school time. That only happens in this room or at this little table or whatever. And now I'm not there anymore and it's my regular life. But again, that's a privilege that a lot of people don't have. The more of that you can do, um, structure, rituals, have separate learning or working environments, probably the easier the transition will be. So that is a whole segment by itself. And, and so it kind of ties into the last two questions that I was going to ask you. And I'm sure Amy has some more uh, pressing questions. But one question for you is how are you better as a result of this pandemic? And I like to think that in some ways I have evolved and I've done some things better. You know, one thing I have done, which you mentioned, is try to keep up with rituals, continue to celebrate birthdays, celebrate them differently. You know, we've done the drive-bys. My husband and I have tried to do something on Friday evenings, have an excursion on the weekend, some kind of mm -hmm. outdoor excursion. We've discovered that there's bison in the Midwest that have been introduced mm -hmm. back to the Midwest, and we went out bison. Uh, watching. Uh, we capsized out of a canoe three times. Uh, <laughs> I will say that that was a traumatic experience. <laughs> yeah. So I've been discovering 
taking the opportunity to discover something new because we can't go to the theater and we can't go here instead of just staying home, try to do something different. So I do want to ask you, so how are you better because of this pandemic? And then you've already given us a lot of tips, but if you have any additional tips and how we deal with some of the transitions, how do we deal with uh, keeping ourselves mentally and emotionally healthy? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, congrats to you for starting a new Midwestern uh, tradition. We used to be known for cow tipping. Now it'll be canoe tipping. So congratulations. <laughs> how, how am I better? I don't know. I was already so good, Joy. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, I think that some of the things you were talking about, getting to spend some time, like uh, spending more time cooking, you know, where before I was in such a rush, you know, now I can spend more time uh, cooking which may have led to the COVID-19 that I've gained. But, um, but uh, people talk about the freshman 15. I think a lot of people have experienced the COVID-19. Although some people have gone the other way and they've really taken the time to exercise Absolutely. more. Some of those things that they didn't have time for and have gotten in better shape. Uh, so I think some of the things that you, as far as being better, I think, um, you know, taking some time to actually spend a little bit more time at home, to enjoy things here, to go on walks, you know, as my mid-afternoon break going on a walk, I have a lake down the street and I take my dogs and walk down there and I get to see my neighbors who I wouldn't usually say and talk to them from a wide distance and wave to them. And again, it's just different to be outside and see your neighbors out there and, and wave hello and, you know, shout at them a, a little bit of, um, talking versus just being on Zoom. It, it engages more of your senses to be in the real world with people in a, in a safe way rather than just doing it through Zoom. But I definitely think, or, or whatever program you're using, but I definitely think being online and talking to people, seeing their faces, not just phone calls, is a way to, to help. But getting outdoors, doing some activities, the people who you are in your bubble together with, you know, that, that you're already around um, so you can safely interact uh, with them as long as they don't bring in something from the outside, that um, spending time um, with them, whether it's playing a game, you know, watching TV, going for a walk. Uh, one of the things you talk about, especially doing something new, like right now, because we're still a lot of us are staying in the same environment. We're not getting new stimuli. And that's something that for most people excites them and bonds them is experiencing something new together. But there are certain people that have a higher threshold to reach that excitement. Those are like your adrenaline junkies and things like that. And uh, I imagine many of them are really, really struggling with this time because what they can go out and do is, is limited and they need a higher level of stimulus to feel those good feelings from trying something unique and, and new. But doing the things you're talking about, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people, you know, talk about, oh, well, you know, I got a, I got a canoe or a kayak and now we're going on the, on the river and doing that, you know, that we went to Star Rock with the kids and, and hike the trails. In Lamont, there's a huge new outdoor, I don't know what they call it, center, we'll just call it, where they have lots of different outdoor activities, which is a little bit safer as long as you stay you know, away from people, lots of hiking trails and zip lines and things like that. You know, People are accessing those things 
uh, more. The problem is, is that sometimes people are trying to do, everybody's trying to do that at once and then it's no longer safe, you know, especially if they're not wearing their masks and, and things like that. But doing things together, having some rituals, trying to find unique experiences that excite you and bond you, you know, to your family members or your partner, those kind of things are definitely uh, helpful to survive this. That everyone has something different that does that for them, that they feel kind of refreshed after they do it, whether it's meditation, it's reading, it's exercising, that people are really going to have to identify more what creates that, um, that relaxation, that feeling re-energized. It's a little different for everyone. Uh, you've given us so much to think about. And especially now, I think this is a, a really good conversation to have. And a lot of great tips for us moving forward. What researchers and theorists do you lean on or who have shaped you that we can point our listeners to for more information? Well, uh, some of the people that have influenced me wouldn't be as easily accessible, accessible, accessible for the general public um, because it's written, you know, more for counselors. And then there's others that have, um, that definitely have a version of their work written for the public. So uh, attachment theory is a big one for people in all different fields, but I wouldn't say, you know, go and, and, and read the original um, attachment theory stuff. There's lots of books that are out there. Some are meant for teachers, some are meant for parents, some are meant for ro romantic partners. So you can go out there and, and um, look them up but uh, and there are specific people depending on if you're like if you're looking at your couple relationship i'd say oh john gottman has some good uh books for the public susan johnson has some good books for the public that would relate to now like you know john gottman really talks about um spending 10 minutes a day and really exchanging information with your with your partner and this works for kids too with your partner and getting to know what's important to them and what they, what went on in their day, people are probably doing that less because they're at home together, but still they're in their own meetings. They're in the, dealing with their, you know, unless they also work together, they're doing their own things. So you can still come back and share that. That's something that used to happen when you came home from work. Now you're working from home. So people may be doing that less. Um, even though they're there together all day, they may actually exchange less information. Um, so uh, reading things based on attachment theory. And like I said, there are things for parents. There are things for, um, for couples. There, there are things for teachers. Uh, Dan Siegel writes a lot about mindfulness and it's, it's attachment based. Um, the name eludes me right now, but he specifically writes attachment based things for um, parents. Um, and um, oh, hold on once. I'm also, and, and this has a little bit less uh, for the public, but um, solution-focused background where you kind of focus on goals and how you can achieve it. And even when things are bad, how you can recognize things that are still working in your life and things that you're grateful for. So I think um, also practicing gratitude during this time it, it would be helpful for a lot of people because it's easy to focus in on everything that's difficult and hard but even in the midst of all this, there are things for each of us to be grateful for. That doesn't negate what's hard, but to recognize both instead of only focusing in on what's good or what's bad is to recognize both. So I like solution focused type things, but for the general um, public, I'd say probably some of the attachment theory stuff would be very helpful. 
and how uh, mostly focusing on how you can have, how important your connection to others are. And that even when you can't go out and see them, there's some research that talks about your person that you're most attached to or the people that you're most attached to, that you feel the most connection to, even hearing their voice on a phone or through some kind of, or seeing their face and hearing their voice on a teleconference um, has a, a calming effect on them if they're very connected to that person. So even if they're not in your home, still maintaining that contact and not isolating yourself um, is still very helpful. But for the general public, I'd say read some of that attachment-based stuff. I think some of the mindfulness stuff and that Dan Siegel writes about, but he's really writing about a lot of neuropsychology type things and how to calm your body and calm your reactions and connect with other people that I think that kind of thing is very helpful, especially when you're trapped with people every day and you might feel extra reactive to them because you're in the home 24 seven with them. You've given us a wealth of information. I am really happy that you were able to join us today. And I invite the listeners to send us comments and feedback and tell us what you want to hear about. So, yeah, thank you. it's been an amazing time with you, Shannon. Enjoyed this. We'll have to have you back and we can talk about pets and maybe we can talk about sex. <laughs> well, you know, we didn't talk about that, but that is one way that people can also connect, but it has to be with someone who's in your bubble or else, you know, you're exposing yourself. That's right. <laughs> I mean, in more than one way, exposing yourself <laughs> to the other person, but also exposing yourself to COVID. So yes, uh, that yes, is yes. one way that people have coped, but we didn't get into that with this, uh, with this yes. particular podcast, but I'd be happy to talk about it anytime. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>